learning self-compassion is important. And they're kind of a, it's a learnable skill. There are three main aspects to it. One is treating yourself with kindness. That's the hard bit for some people. You can, and I always tell people, imagine you're talking to yourself as you would a friend or a child or, you know, someone that you care about. Have a similar sort of language when you talk to yourself. And the second thing is understand that you're human and humans are going to to make mistakes. We're going to stuff up in big and small ways all the time in all spheres of our life forever. That's just part of being human. And then, as you mentioned, this be an observer to your thoughts. I call that that cultivating mindfulness. So it allows you to be able to watch your thoughts. So a mindfulness practice, and there are many ways to do that, helps you watch the thoughts so that you can direct them in more kind ways towards yourself. Hi, I'm Dr. Morgan Nolte, physical therapist turned weight loss coach. I used to struggle with emotional eating, consistency, and confidence. Then I made my health a priority and learned how to lose the mental and physical weight once and for all. I changed my mindset and lifestyle to lose weight with small, sustainable changes. Each week on the Reshape Your Health podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies to help you do the same. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. If you're new to the show or you're more of a passive listener, I wanted to encourage you to take a small, simple step for your health today. I have a free 60-second weight loss plateau quiz made just for you. At the time of this recording in mid-April, over 650 people have taken this quiz to find out which type of weight loss plateau they have. I know how frustrating it can be to want to lose weight and feel like you can't, like something is wrong with your metabolism, or like you know what to do, but you can't seem to turn that insight into action. I've been there myself, and I've helped women through these same kinds of problems. I have successful strategies to help you break through your plateau, but you have to know which type you have first. That way you can take clear, decisive action in the right direction instead of feeling like you're just throwing stuff against the wall and hoping that it sticks. So do not wait another second to get answers. I want you to take this quiz today. Just go to weightlossforhealth.com forward slash quiz. That's weightlossforhealth.com forward slash quiz. And once you do, you'll automatically be in the loop to receive an invitation to the brand new free trainings coming this May. The trainings are value packed and they're going to teach you how to break through your type of plateau. Do not miss out on this. Don't go down the Google rabbit hole, get clear guidance from the quiz and free trainings coming next month. Registration starts soon for the training. So go take that quiz now. Tell me this. Do you struggle with negative critical self-talk? Do you speak to yourself in ways that you would never dream of speaking to someone else? Do you ever feel like you're self-sabotaging your weight loss? Like you have really good intentions and then you get off track and then you give yourself a mental beat down. So for example, do you tell yourself you're not going to eat any dessert after dinner or a party and then you do and then you spiral and you end up saying, screw it, I already blew it and I'm just going to go eat whatever I want for the rest of the weekend and start again on Monday. Friends. 
there's nothing magical about Monday. But we've all been there. One of my business mentors, Marie Forleo, says limiting beliefs guarantees limited outcomes. So if you want to lose all your weight, you're going to have to learn how to find and fix your limiting non-productive thoughts and beliefs that are causing you to self-sabotage. And you're going to learn some great tips for how to do that in this episode today. How much mental energy would you get back if you could plug these draining thought holes in your brain? How would you redirect that energy towards positive progress? It is possible to effectively and efficiently change your limiting thoughts. When it comes to losing weight, there are so many forces working against you. 95% of diets fail for a reason. In order to master your physical state, you have to master your mental state. And that's what we're talking about today. You'll be learning more about this next week, but there is a direct line between your thoughts, emotions, actions, and results. Most weight loss plans start at action. And then you feel like you're forcing yourself to do what you don't wanna do always feeling deprived and restricted and wondering, is this ever going to work for me? But here's the thing, 90% of our decisions and our thoughts every day are made by our subconscious mind. If you're not working to embed new thoughts and beliefs in your subconscious mind, you're not going to be successful changing your lifestyle. You're relying on 10% of your brain power, your conscious mind, your motivation and willpower is not going to get you very far. The best weight loss programs start with your thoughts because when you think better, you feel better. And when you feel better, you'll act better and ultimately you'll get better results. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Mary Barson. She got up really early just for you. It was 6 a.m. in Australia when we recorded this interview. She holds degrees in medicine and biochemistry. She's a practicing general practitioner qualified in medical hypnosis and has additional psychological and nutritional medicine training. She is a co-host of the Real Health and Weight Loss podcast. Now I know what you might be thinking, Morgan, I've been to counseling for years and it hasn't helped. I've tried positive thinking, I've tried journaling, and hypnosis is way too woo-woo for me. Nothing helps, nothing works for me. Now remember, everything feels like a failure in the middle. You're right where you're meant to be, and every experience you've ever had is just data. So give yourself grace and patience and have an open mind as you listen to this episode. I want you to think about your options, not obstacles. Maybe you're already journaling or doing a mindfulness practice, but when was the last time you really optimized it? When was the last time you asked yourself, what questions could I ask to get better results? Whether you're just thinking about getting started losing weight, you're actively trying, you're in maintenance, or you're in a regain spiral right now, you're going to get something out of this interview. You can do whatever you put your mind to, especially if it's implanted in your heart. I believe in you. I know you were put on this earth to, go, to do great things and become the best version of yourself. And I'm here to help and support you along your weight loss and wellness journey. I'm here to encourage you and inspire you with episodes just like this so you never feel stuck again. Here's what you're gonna learn in this interview. Dr. Mary shares three tips to transition from a diet full of processed foods to one centered around real food. What to do when you get off track with your diet. 
why self-compassion and grace are vital keys to sustainable weight loss, what a typical medical hypnosis session looks like, a practical step-by-step -step roadmap for doing your own mindfulness practice. This is going to allow you to embed positive suggestions into your subconscious mind, which remember is responsible for 90% of our actions. So you see better weight loss results. You are going to love Dr. Mary. She is so sweet and gracious. Let's get started with this interview. Dr. Mary, thank you so much for waking up early in Australia to join us on the reshape your health podcast. I am so delighted that you're here and I know this is going to be a really fun interview. Let's get started. I want you to introduce yourself to our listeners, our viewers, and tell us who you are and how you, who you help and how you help them. Yes. I'd love to. I have to say g'day because I am Australian. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Um, and we do, we do genuinely say g'day in Australia. It's not a myth. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm Mary Barson. I'm a medical doctor and general practitioner. And my real passion, what I do is help people lose weight uh, naturally and sustainably using a combination of, of real food, helping people transition to real food, and I spend a lot of my time addressing the underlying psychology, helping people heal their relationships with food and heal their relationships with themselves. It's, it's such an, an enormously important part of, of everybody's health and wellness journey. So I work in a clinic, seeing patients face-to-face, -face, um, doing standard family medicine as well as weight loss medicine. And I have an online business with my wonderful colleague, Dr. Lucy Burns. Our business is called Real Life Medicine, and we do online courses and online coaching, primarily for women to help them lose weight sustainably. I know our approaches are so similar and we're on completely different sides of the world. And I think it's so cool that we both came to this common ground approach of weight loss. And you have a, I think an interesting story because there are a lot of doctors who, you know, it is hard to become a doctor first and foremost, it takes a lot of sacrifice. And I think sometimes we put the health of others before ourselves. And so I, I was reading through your website and saw you were once unhealthy. And I wanted to know what sparked the desire in you to lose weight and get healthy. And then further, what, what drove you to make that kind of your career, you know, to really help women lose weight and get healthy? Mm, yeah. Fabulous question. So I have polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, and have struggled with my weight my entire adult life. And I was a health conscious person. You know, I, I'd see my GP about my issues with PCOS. I was sent to a dietitian. I would, you know, exercise hard, but I followed the standard dietary advice of the, you know, high carb, low fat diet. I really, really did, did everything that, that I was asked to do, but never got any better. Just tended to get sicker and sicker, which was extremely frustrating for me. Um, by the same token, I was also, you know, busy studying medicine, um, being a junior doctor, um, climbing up through those ranks. It's a fairly brutal process. So I, you know, just sort of got on with my life and did the best I could and was just quietly frustrated thinking, this is my lot. I'm just going to be overweight and I'm just going to have PCOS and I might have trouble having kids. And I just thought that that was all that there was for me. And it's actually really by accident because we don't get taught much nutrition in medicine. 
So the only thing I knew was what my dietitian had told me. Um, by accident, when I was doing a rotation in palliative medicine, um, in the community rotation, a whole lot of the nurses, the community palliative care nurses, um, did a health challenge at a local gym where part of it, it was a CrossFit gym, and part of the challenge was to go on a paleo diet for 30 days. And I didn't know anything about paleo. I just went along just because I liked these, these nurses. Um, they were men and women, and so I just joined them just for the fun of it. And I went on a paleo diet. I just jumped in. And this particular version was a quite low-carb paleo diet, so I just went on a low-carb real food diet and for uh, two weeks, I felt absolutely wretched, far more wretched yeah. than anybody else that was doing it. And I now know that I was dealing with the transition phase, but I lost weight um, and nothing had ever worked before. So just by changing my diet, I, I lost weight and my um, far more startling than that, the absolute conversion moment for me was my polycystic ovarian syndrome, syndrome symptoms went away my periods normalized you know the acne went away and and I got pregnant which was it was actually a good thing like I was it was okay yeah good to clarify (laughs) that right it is always good to clarify that (laughs) so I've now got this wonderful nearly eight-year-old daughter so I mean that was startling to me absolutely startling so that set me on this path and then Later on, just seeing so many people struggle with the same thing, that same things that I was, um, it occurred to me that I could could help everybody have their, well, everybody who wanted to, to have their own conversion moment with with real food, really. Yeah, I wanted to talk about um, the the physiology behind real food and why that is so important because big weight loss companies have a lot of money to put into food development. And essentially it's processed food with a health food label on it. And so we have to be really cognizant of learning about nutrition and learning how to read food labels. And so where do you start when you are educating people about real food and the importance of real food to lose weight and keep it off? Yeah, great question. So I start by explaining what I mean by real food. And it's a term that can be thrown around a bit, I reckon, Real food is food as close as possible to its natural state. So when it's taken from the animal or taken from the plant, plucked from the vine, pulled from the ground, as close as possible to its natural state. And, and any when you read a label, any food that's got more than five ingredients, that would be the first thing. Just stop and check. It's probably not real food. Um, so that's a good tip and, and shopping the perimeter of the supermarket so that you're getting your meat, your dairy products, your fruit, your veggies, your nuts, and not going in into the bowels of the supermarket where all this processed food lies. Uh, Dr. Bickman was going to be on the week before this airs. And I thought I, he had a really catchy saying, if it had, if it comes in a bag, a box or has a barcode. It's, yes. you know, it's probably a process for you to go, well, that's a catchy iteration there. <laughs> Do I love that one? Bag box and barcode. That's right. I have to exercise a bit of wisdom because a packet of macadamia nuts um, comes in a packet. But still right, or beans one. or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that's important. Now tell us, tell us why eating real food helps us lose weight versus buying into the marketing where, you know, something could say, I did a post on Instagram recently about a protein bar that, that touted it's 20 grams of protein on the front, but didn't talk about the 20 plus grams of added sugar 
that you saw when you looked on the back of the food label. So it actually had more added sugar than it did added protein. But if you're not educating yourself on just some of the basics here, you could really be setting yourself up for disappointment. Um, so why is it so important that we learn this stuff? How does it affect the hormones that are responsible for weight gain? Yeah. And then you've, you've hit the nail on the head. It is all about hormones. So the taming the metabolic hormones, nearly all the time people are overweight because their metabolic hormones have become drastically unbalanced, you know, with elevated insulin, our fat storing hormone, elevated leptin, um, which uh, prevents us from feeling full and prevents us from feeling um, satiated with meals. The whole system is completely hijacked and it is hijacked by processed foods. This is what they do. They are really toxic to our inner balance. Um, they're delicious. You know, they're hyper palatable. They have been created to be hyper palatable so that we like them. Um, they, uh, they stimulate the reward system in our brain and also marketing mischief. They're marketed as healthy. And our whole food environment is saturated with these processed foods Many of them, people have no idea that they are, in fact, completely hijacking their natural hormonal um, inner balance. And if you just you step away from that and you eat real food, you put your health back in your own hands and take it out of the hands of the processed food industry. Now, this is... I think a lot easier is said than done. And we're really going to dig into this because it comes down to behavior change, habit change. And I think that this is where so many, um, weight loss programs fall short to be completely honest. And why weight regain is very common because some people, some programs tell you what to do with very little science behind it. And I know yours is a science-based program. I think it's also important to explain why we do what we do how different choices affect your metabolism, how they affect your weight loss and how we can incorporate small sustainable changes into our lifestyle so that these stick. And what, if you had to, if someone came to, came to you to lose weight and they wanted to eat real food, but they didn't know where to start, what would be like your top three pieces of advice to start eating more real food and not feel deprived because that's a whole nother issue when people are like, well, I'm, you know, I'm having food FOMO. I'm, I'm missing out on the the stuff that other people are eating. And, you know, people in their house might not want to change their diet and they're facing some real life situations that, that make that processed unhealthy food that they're already kind of addicted to you know, really hard to give up. So what are, what are your top three or so pieces of advice there to get started? Yeah. So the, I can, the number one would be find your why, why do you want to do this? So you need to have a good reason to change because change is at least initially hard. So, and you know, I, I would just, I want to lose, you know, five kilos, eight pounds, whatever. That's not a good why. Uh, in, in, in my experience, having done this for a long time with people, that's not a good enough why. I want to reverse my diabetes so that I'll live longer and be able to dance at my grandchild's wedding. That's a good why. 
or even I had a wonderful woman who was, I want to be able to go on a plane, this is pre-COVID, go on a plane and not need a seatbelt extender. Like it was mortifying to her that she couldn't fit in a normal seatbelt on a plane. That's a good why. So it has to be something that really connects deep within it's a great idea to write your why down and plaster it around the house. Did you so see the that, sign behind me? I think it's backwards. It says, keep oh, your eye on your why. That's like fantastic. that's my first step too. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> keep your eye on your why. All the time, people. Oh, perfect. Yes. I yeah, love it. We're perfect. so well aligned. We are. <laughs> <laughs> love it a lot. So that is the, yes, definitely number one. You need to know why. So you're going to be swimming upstream for a while and you have to have a good reason to do it. Um, I reckon uh, uh, the next good tip would be commitment. So just get into your mind why you're going to do this. It, has, it is really doable. Like real food is delicious. It's satiating. You're not going to be hungry. It's extremely doable and indeed enjoyable, but you need to commit and um, my colleague, Dr. Lucy, is like the analogy queen. She comes up with so many great analogies. And this is one of hers, which I love it. So imagine, so most of your listeners would have, you know, possibly have pets or, or children, one, one or both of those. And just like imagine that um, you have to pick up your child from after school care or you need to pick up your dog from the groomers and after work. And you've just made that commitment to do it. And no matter what, you're going to do that. You're not going to leave your kid in after school care. You're not going to leave your dog at the groomers overnight. You're just going to do it. You're not going to say, ah, I can't really be bothered today. I reckon I'll just go to the cafe and have some coffee and cake. I'll pick them up tomorrow. You're just going yeah. to do it. Like, you know, <laughs> and so make that same level of commitment to your health. You're just going to do it. Mm-hmm. Commitment. And then the third one. I think um, I know that you're big on this concept as well is being kind to yourself as even with keeping your eye on your why and committing to this, um, it's still very, very normal and expected that you'll slip up. And that's because it's a high carb world out there. It's full of processed foods, habit change. It's, it's, it takes time and effort. And if you slip up, you just, you just, with kindness and compassion, get back on track. You know, I, and I think language here is important. I hear mm-hmm. people often say, oh, Mary, like patients come in and see me. I fell off the wagon and they're so mm-hmm. angry with themselves. Or, you know, I had a birthday party, friend's birthday party, had some cake and I was derailed. And those, those language that fell off the wagon, derailed, I don't like them. You know, your health journey isn't some passive wagon ride that you just hop on a wagon and then it goes off. And if you hit a pothole and you fall off, the wagon keeps going and you're stuck forever in processed food hell. Or it's not a train (laughs) that can go off track and just uh, can be derailed and then the train just forever languages off the track, never able to get back on. I like to say, imagine your health journey is an all-terrain four-wheel drive vehicle and you can drive it anywhere you want and if you drive it you know down to the birthday cake lane you can just yank on the steering wheel and get it back on track with compassion and kindness you can steer your all-terrain four-wheel drive health journey anywhere you go (laughs) 
I, I love, I'm going to probably steal that analogy in the future and I'll give you credit. Um, (laughs) I love analogies too, and they're not quite my strong suit. I feel like sometimes I come up with analogy that makes perfect sense to me. And then I tell it to somebody else and they're like, what are you talking about, Morgan? So (laughs) thanks for, thanks for sharing some of those. Um, and I, I think it's important to recognize, I asked you a question about, how do we stop eating processed food? And your answer had nothing to do with food. It had everything to do with mindset. Mm. It really starts with mindset and it starts with that commitment and that why I I usually tell people, if your why isn't strong enough where you can tell me it in 10 seconds or less, Mm. and if it, it has to involve someone other than yourself, you know, because we are so much more motivated to, um, kind of please other people or live up to their expectations or just live our life with a greater purpose. I think that's really the deeper, the meaning of it. You know, our kids, our family, like how, why do you want to lose weight? How does that impact their life? How does that impact your role? And so that's one first step in my program. Weight loss for health is really helping them connect to that. Why understand some basic life principles to follow through and stay committed when you don't feel like it, because if you quit, you're not going to get any results. So I think it's also helpful with that analogy. When I say I'm going to go pick up my kids, I have two kids. They're about three and one from daycare. Um, today in an hour, I'm very committed to that. That is not a yes or no, that's going to happen. And you can feel that viscerally. And I don't think that we tap into our feelings enough with weight loss. And so you want to feel that same sense of clarity and commitment when you say, this is what I'm going to do for the day. Or when you say, I'm not going to have food, you know, at at X and Y party, because it's not in alignment with my goals, or I'm going to create some boundaries around food. So we really need to dig into the psychological aspect of weight loss. Um, I think that's, I, I know you have a lot of areas of expertise, but I think that there's not so many people talking about this and I wanted to, to dig into your perspective. So what do you think are the major aspects of psychology that come into play with our weight? Mm. Yeah, great question. I think psychology is, is, is almost everything with, with, um, with weight management. I, reckon, I used to think that back in medical training that weight loss was, say, you know, 80% exercise, 20% diet. Then I learned a bit more about, you know, nutrition after my paleo, um, you know, paleo diet experiment. And I was like, no, I'm wrong. It's like 80% diet and 20% exercise. And then I started working in this field helping people um, to, to lose weight for themselves. And now I know that it's, it's 80% mindset and 19% diet. And like, you can sprinkle some exercise on top if you want to. So it's, it's everything. It's absolutely everything. Yeah. All right. So the major aspects, well, you know, at, at extreme ends, you've got binge eating disorders um, where people have got really disordered psychology around food and they need very specific help. People can absolutely heal from that, but it's, it's, quite quite intensive psychological help and then you know far more in the much more sort of normal spectrum um much more sort of common spectrum i suppose look it's complex but emotional eating is really really common we are conditioned to use food to soothe to reward to commiserate to punish even people use food to punish themselves so there's this complex emotional relationship with food um, that 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 we need to untangle for people and sort of decouple and I think that 
a lot of that is because people are not um, used to dealing with their negative feelings. They just want to stuff them down with food. And, um, and I think from a cultural point of view, that is something that we've all been trained to do, to not sort of just keep it nice, don't think about your negative feelings. And people can really, they might not even know how to deal with them. People need to learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable yes yeah you don't need (laughs) yes yes (laughs) you don't need to stuff your feelings uncomfortable feelings down with food it's actually normal to feel uncomfortable at times anger you know frustration sadness fear disgust they are normal parts of the human experience and learning to embrace them tolerate them I think is an enormous part of um, the psychology of weight loss. And, you know, another aspect I think is, is trauma, people's past trauma, that often plays a role and people might not even be aware of that, that um, we've got learned behaviours relating to sort of even, even minor things. So I'm not talking about massive trauma, but say, you know, when, um, when it, people have had grief in the past, a relationship has broken up, a pet has died, something like that, it's usually quite normal to, you know, eat some ice cream in front of the telly, to have lots of cookies or whatever it is, to, to negate the negative experiences of whatever the traumatic experience was. So often unpacking people's trauma to a degree is important as well. What are some of your go-to ways to do that? Because I think so much, I like the word that you used uncoupled, Mm. uncoupling negative, negative emotions and emotional eating. So where do you recommend people start with that uncoupling experience? Because quite frankly, I think a lot of people are in the camp of I'm doing this. I don't like that. I'm doing this. I don't know why I'm doing this and I certainly don't know how to stop doing this. Yes. So I'd start off with um, addressing people's guilt and shame around it, um, that people often feel very guilty and ashamed of their emotional eating and that can make it worse and also make them not even want to think about it. I don't want to address that. You know, I hate that I do this. It is just the worst part of me. I'm not thinking about it. I think to take away the <laughs> take away the emotion of emotional eating, it's just a tool. It's just a tool that people have learnt to to deal with the emotions in life. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just a tool. And the issue is that particularly if someone is overweight and wanting to lose weight, or they're unhealthy and wanting to get healthy, it's a tool that's no longer serving them. So the idea is now you need to come up with some new tools. That is certainly one part of it. And new tools, it can be other acts of self-care, you know, having a bath, going for a walk, calling a friend, um, or even you know, having a cup of tea, something else that is soothing but isn't, you know, a bucket of ice cream that's going not in line with your health goals. Yeah. And the other part of it is, and this can take time, is learning to accept emotions are a normal part of life and that it is okay to not be okay. You know, you know, joy, excitement, these feelings don't last. We, we have moments of great joy in our life and they, they come and they go and we don't expect it to last. You know, we laugh at a joke. We don't expect to keep laughing forever, but those emotions are fleeting 
The same with anger, fear, um, uh, disgust. Those emotions are fleeting as well. They, they kind of suck, like they're uncomfortable, but they don't last and they have a role to play. So learning to accept negative emotions and learning new tools to deal with negative emotions is the sort of two-pronged approach. I really like how you said food is a tool because I think it objectifies it a little bit more. We have mm. such a deep personal visceral relationship with food, I think. But when you say it's a tool and I really like to use the saying, have an observer mindset to your emotions. Like and that. because that kind of takes the, you said, take the emotions out of the emotion. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite tools that I recommend is journaling. And because we don't often pay heed to our subconscious mind, but that's really what's steering most of our behavior. And so what I tell my clients and my course members is when you journal your subconscious mind kind of comes out and you can read your thoughts and then you can have an observer mindset over, you know, what you wrote down and you can say, I'm going to keep that one. I'm going to keep that good thought. I'm going to get rid of that thought. You know, that is a guilt thought. That is a shame thought that is not in line with my goals. And I have tools to help people do that, you know, but first they have to really recognize the guilt and the shame. And that can be hard. So do you have any specific journal prompts or other tools? Um, I know that you do some medical hypnosis and we can Mm. talk about that. Mm. If that's where we need to start is addressing the guilt and the shame around, is it the act of emotional eating or what is the guilt and shame that we need to address about first of all? And then how do we go about addressing that? Mm. I think it, it's the guilt and the shame about emotional eating makes it more difficult for people to address it as well as their guilt and shame about being overweight in the first place. Yeah, so I always tell people and that it's not their fault that they're overweight. It's like it's not their fault that they have a particular type of metabolism that is ruined by the processed food that is everywhere. Yeah, it's certainly their responsibility um, and they are able to fix it and they can be empowered to do so, but it's not their fault. Um, self-compassion is a, an enormous part of, of the psychology of weight loss and dealing with emotional eating and breaking those, those old harmful habits. And like, it can be good to view like a... Uh, Past decisions, including emotional eating, you know, using ice cream to soothe, you know, anger or stress or whatever it is that we do, view it with compassion. And self-compassion is a learnable skill and it can really help dumb down or just, just quieten that inner directed anger. And medical hypnosis is great for this too, and we could certainly talk about that soon. So being compassionate to yourselves for all of your past decisions and understanding that your brain, when it makes these choices and all the choices it's made, it hasn't done this maliciously. Your conscious mind is just trying to keep us safe, was trying to keep you safe the best it can. And sometimes it goes and does some weird things, such as eating an entire bucket of ice cream because you feel stressed but it is still just trying to deal with the situation, trying to keep us safe. So you can be kind to your brain, even when it does some things that aren't all that helpful. And 
learning self-compassion is important. And they're kind of a, it's a learnable skill. There are three main aspects to it. One is treating yourself with kindness. That's the hard bit for some people. You can, and I always tell people, imagine you're talking to yourself as you would a friend or a child or, you know, someone that you care about. Have a similar sort of language when you talk to yourself. And the second thing is understand that you're human and humans are going to to make mistakes. We're going to stuff up in big and small ways all the time in all spheres of our life forever. That's just part of being human. And then, as you mentioned, this be an observer to your thoughts. I call that that cultivating mindfulness. So it allows you to be able to watch your thoughts. So a mindfulness practice, and there are many ways to do that, helps you watch the thoughts so that you can direct them in more kind ways towards yourself. Mm -hmm. I think I just wanted to tell you this story too, because I think emotional eating can be based on strong emotions, um, such as the guilt, the shame, the anger, the hurt, the loneliness, the depression. I think it can also be based on happy emotions. You know, we want to compound, It's like misery loves company, but so does joy, you know? And so it's like, we're feeling good. Let's have some cake and whatever too, to, to feel even better. Um, I think, have you heard of nostalgic eating? I don't know if I just made that up. Now tell me more about nostalgic eating. Okay. So I think this is a really big deal where people may not connect so much with, well, I don't really have the guilt or the shame, but every time I get in this certain situation, I just want to eat this. And so I think it's helpful to tell the story of when I was a child, my, at my grandparents' house, um, at the cabin at Lake McConaughey in Nebraska, it's this big, beautiful Lake in Western Nebraska. And they always had cabinets full of M&Ms mm-hmm. and I would go get a whole bowl of M&Ms. Like it was cereal. And I was like seven, eight. Right. And then I'd put it in the microwave for exactly one minute so that the inside was melted and the outside was crispy. And then I'd sit there and my brother and I would watch Rugrats, which is a show. I think it was on Nickelodeon and my mom blocked it from our house because Angelica, (laughs) one of the main characters was mean and she didn't want me to have that bad influence. (laughs) And so to me, sitting and eating sugar was this escape, you know, from normal life. Mm. And I felt safe and I felt comfortable and I felt loved because I was in the safe cabin, you know, watching, um, a good show that, you know, and I also think it was like kind of sneaky a little bit too. (laughs) And so now as an adult, what I recognized was when I wanted to feel safe, when I wanted to feel comforted, when I wanted to feel loved, and maybe a little sneaky, I would go for the sugar, you know, our brain links those nostalgic feelings. And lo and behold, you know, we also, I mean, we're foodies in our family. So cinnamon rolls, homemade ice cream and chocolate sauce, the diet Cokes, all that happened out at the lake. And so as I was on my own health transformation, I noticed like I did really well in my own environment. And then I'd go to the lake or I'd go on vacation and I would find myself really getting off track and taking that observer and I would beat myself up over it. And then I kind of took a step back and I said, you know what, this is just another form of emotional eating. It's a skill that you can learn to not do. And it's okay. 
It's okay that it takes you some time to work through this and does, and to work through this nostalgic or conditional hunger. So I didn't know if you'd heard of of another one, conditional hunger or learned hunger. Um, a great example is we went to a hockey game. Have you ever been to a hockey game? Um, not an ice hockey game. It's pretty hard to come by in Australia. (laughs) Certainly grass hockey. (laughs) I'd never been, we went on Friday and I was, it was our first kind of major social outing since COVID my husband and I, Mm. and I did not expect the amount of processed food. I kind Mm. of thought, you know, people are still in masks, food's going to be limited, but no, I mean, there were hot dogs, there were nachos, there were pretzels, there were funnel cakes there was pop, there was Dippin' Dots ice cream. And I mean, people ate all of it. People Mm -hmm. around me ate all of this food. And I had a bottle. I fueled myself really well before we went. I said, this is a situation where you might want to emotionally eat. And it's probably better if you fuel yourself and then have some boundaries around it, have some water. And I think I take for granted how much of a skill it is to not eat when you don't want to eat and to recognize slippery slopes for you, you know, for me, slippery slopes are like popcorn at the movies. It's hard to stop after just a little bit. You're conditioned to want popcorn at the movies. So I think helping people understand emotional eating has, can, can wear different masks. You know, it can wear nostalgic eating. It can wear, Mm. it can wear conditional eating, straight up emotional eating, But I do think that these techniques that you're going to talk about with the mindfulness and the hypnosis can help with all of them. I just wanted people to have more context in which to kind of filter this information through. So can you talk a little bit more about your medical hypnosis training and how you use that? Because hundred percent honesty, um, I thought hypnosis was really, really woo woo, you know, when I, when I first got into this and, uh, I don't know, probably many people had some weird, um, circus or carnival, or mine was a high school prom experience where we hired a hypnosis and, um, people from my high school would get up and then they'd act like zombies and fall asleep. And I'm like, this is a bunch of nonsense. And so I kind of, um, falsely attributed that to medical hypnosis, but it's very powerful. And I really wanted to, um, bring, bring it to light to a bigger audience. Tell us why you got into it, how you got into it and how you use it. Yeah. So how did I get into it? Well, I've, I started meditating and having a mindfulness practice during medical school. Um, It was a very stressful, stressful, stressful time in my life. And, um, and I saw a meditation teacher and I learnt, I learnt um, mindfulness and meditation just to help me cope with the stress of medicine. And it worked really, really well. So, and I've had pretty much a regular practice ever since then. I'm not perfect. And I could certainly go through spells where I, you know, I, I don't do it for a while, but then I get back on it and it is always better when I do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then actually <laughs> the reason I got into medical hypnosis was because of my dad. So my father is an anaesthetist. Um, I think you might call them anesthesiologists in America. And um, he used medical hypnosis 
especially for people with um, needle phobias because he spends his entire day putting um, putting drips in people and for children and for really anxious people, people who are really worried. He, he just wanted to know how can I help people with the needle phobia, you know, because he'd see a lot of them. And so he did some medical hypnosis and um, it was incredibly effective for him. And he actually did heaps and heaps of medical hypnosis courses and has become, has become really very skilled in that area. And so I was just from him combined with my, I know meditation and mindfulness is so good, believe in the power of mind. And so I signed up for a medical hypnosis course um, as soon as I'd finished my general practice training. And I was inclined to believe it because I heard from dad just how well it worked in the, the specific sort of niche area that he worked in. And so, yeah, I started doing medical hypnosis and it works. It's, it's, it's really safe and it works. And I think, yeah, hypnosis does have a bit of a bad name from stage hypnotists. I love stage yeah. hypnotists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. I think it's, it's quite funny. But um, so stage hypnotists um, are a very skilled bunch of people. Um, I'm not a stage hypnotist. And actually, stage hypnotists often make very good therapeutic hypnotists as well, and, and a lot of them do both. And so those people at your prom who are pretending to be zombies and just you know, acting like completely silly goats, they were a self-selected group of extroverts who wanted to go on stage and act like silly goats. This is one of the main myths, I think, around hypnosis is you cannot be hypnotised to do something you don't want to do. It is absolutely a consent state. Stage hypnotists are extremely skilled at very rapidly screening the people who want to be hypnotised and will do it. And they, they actually, they, they, they have sort of, they do the screening very, very quickly and very subtly and they will pick people and pass over other people. So they weed out the sceptics. Um, because there are lots of people watching uh, hypnotists, stage hypnotists, who would be like, absolutely not, no way, I'm not doing that. And that would be won't. me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you would be a terrible subject for a stage they hypnotist. They passed me over in high school for sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you can't be, that, that is, I think, a really important point. It's completely and utterly a consent state. Um, the... What I use medical hypnosis for is it's a wonderful way to strengthen people's to strengthen people's resolve. And you talked about the power of the subconscious before. And it is, it's in a way to have a conversation with our subconscious. So there's two parts to hypnosis. One is getting into a trance state, and the second is the positive suggestions. So trance states is when we get really nice and relaxed. Um, and our conscious mind still aware. Um, people remember hypnosis. That's another myth. Like amnesia is really uncommon. It can be induced, but people usually remember um, all of their um, all of their hypnosis session. So people get into a trance state, and in that trance state, the conscious mind is still there. It still knows what's going on, but it's sort of just put on the shelf for a minute, and it's not in charge. And then positive suggestions, suggestions that you agree with can really embed very deeply in your subconscious. And so it's a wonderful way of um, supercharging behavioural change, a wonderful adjunct to psychological therapy that helps people shift their mindset quite quickly. And trances sound scary, I'm going to put you in a trance, but actually trances are really normal and natural. And we go in and out of trances all the time. You know, if you 
find yourself watching a movie and you're just really into it, you're in a trance. If you're reading a book and you're really into it, you're in a trance. Sometimes we get into trance states with work when we're really in, we get in the flow state, you know, that's a trance. And driving, if you're going on a long drive, perhaps a drive that you know very well and all of a sudden you just arrive home and you can't quite, just not sure entirely how you got there, you're in a trance state. So it's perfectly natural and everybody can be hypnotised. It's a very, very natural um, human um, human state, the trance state. Okay, this is a silly question from a novice hmm. here. Yep. Can you hypnotize yourself? Like I hmm. think how I do my meditation is a very informal practice where I just really try to quiet my mind and ask, you know, what thoughts are hiding, you know, or what's holding me back or something like that. Do you find that people can put themselves in this trans state or does it really help to have some guided meditation or does it just depend on the person? What's your experience there? Mm. Definitely people can put themselves in a trans state. And indeed, when we, when we relax our mind, we do active relaxation. We're in a trans state pretty much always. Um, and so we can definitely do self-hypnosis. And I'll talk about a form of self-hypnosis I do a lot in a minute. Um, actually, I'll talk about it now. So <laughs> you mentioned before, which I loved, about you had a plan when you went to that hockey game that you fueled your body beforehand and you were like, you told yourself there's going to be lots of processed food around and I choose not to eat it. So you had a plan. So a really common form of self-hypnosis I do and I teach to people is visualisation. And this is not new, like the athletic world has, has known about this for a very long time, that if you visualise and mentally rehearse um, what you want to do before you do it, you basically win before you've even got there. You know, you, the athletes can win the race before they've even um, put, yeah, entered the track with this visualisation technique. So if I've got, you know, something where there's going to be that conditional eating, like a birthday party or Easter, whew, we just had Easter here, hot cross buns and easter eggs yep and people associate easter with eating hot cross buns and easter eggs mm. so encourage people to have a plan and visualize what they're going to do so let's say easter so they're going to have easter lunch with their family the kids are going to go on easter egg hunt and just visualize what their plan is you know what are they going to have for breakfast before they go what are they going to do when they get there you know are they just they're going to um you know what are they going to eat bring food with them whatever their plan is and to get themselves in a nice relaxed state. It's great to do it just before bed. Take three slow, deep breaths. And even that can be enough to just get into a, a very light trance state. We just get nice and relaxed and visualise what they're going to do each step of the way along their whole plan for that whole Easter Sunday. And then take three slow, deep breaths again and go through it again and then do it three times before bed, that's a type of self-hypnosis that can really embed in your subconscious your plan of how you're going to deal with that, avoiding the conditional eating. And so I just, I'm really getting into this. So when you're doing that, are you using your conscious brain to plan? Because I thought it was like the conscious brain that does the planning and then the subconscious brain, unless you're really thinking about it in the moment, does the executing. So is that, is that what's going on there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So with this okay. visualisation technique, which is, you know, it's a kind of self-hypnosis, you using your conscious brain has got the plan, oh, but on Easter Sunday it's your unconscious brain that's going to be reaching for the sweet buns and to be eating the Easter eggs. That's because that's just they're there. We humans are primed to. Conditional um, eating. Totally. Exactly. Yes. So you use that little little mini self-hypnosis exercise for your to take the intention from your conscious brain and implant it in your subconscious okay. brain so it becomes quite effortless and much much easier to execute your conscious mind plan uh, when your subconscious is on board the next day <laughs> I love that you said that word implant you know mm. because I think people get so darn frustrated when they're like, why am I not sticking to my plan? And that's a really simple technique that you just shared. Just to reiterate, it's take three slow, deep breaths, like right before bed, step-by-step, step, take your conscious mind through your plan to implant or embed it in your subconscious mind and make it. And then you take three breaths to get out of it. And then you do it again and do it three yeah. times. Is that what you said? Yeah. So the repetition is so important, just like mm -hmm. everything else with a healthy lifestyle, we have to keep repeating it to implant that in our brains and our habits. And I kind of like to say, um, it's kind of like the four wheel drive vehicle to expand on that, you know, yeah. our habits create ruts in the roads, yes. you know, and if you've been driving down an unhealthy road over and over and over, you're going to have really deep, unhealthy ruts. And so using this type of, of hypnosis can help um, get out of the rut a little bit easier than just sheer willpower mm. in the moment and say, I'm not going to have any candy on Easter, but then not do that work to train your brain that you're not going to have any candy and really think through your plan. So thanks for sharing that little tip. And I wanted to know if you had any other little tips or if you just wanted to explain what a typical medical hypnosis session looks like, and if it's done in person or if it can be done virtually, you know, what does it normally look like for, for the newbies out there to medical hypnosis? Mm. So it can be done in person and that's probably the most powerful because uh, we, we communicate in ways, nonverbal ways that I think make the hypnosis more powerful. It can certainly be done um, over the phone, over the internet, or even with a recording. And I do, uh, we use a lot of recordings, hypnosis recordings in our, in our um, online courses. So a typical session of medical hypnosis would be we spend um, about 20 minutes with someone coming up with their goals. So what is it that they want to tell their subconscious, you know, that the, the actions that they want to, um, you know, eat real food, to it might be to um, meditate, to exercise more, to sleep better, you know, whatever their goals are, and it can be used for anything, smoking, I often, often help people quit smoking. It's very effective for that. And then I put people in a trance state, which is just a nice relaxed state. And there's lots of ways to do that, so many ways. I usually just do progressive muscle relaxation. So relax the body and then relax the mind. And then I give them the positive suggestions and I can do that with um, guided imagery, um, imagine they're walking through a forest and, and create a story with their positive suggestions. Some people aren't good at mental imagery, so I might use words or colours or other things. And then I'll do that for maybe half an hour and then wake them back up again. 
And almost universally, people are pleasantly surprised about how easy they could go into a trans state and how pleasant and relaxing the whole experience was. And how many sessions does it typically take? Or is this kind of an ongoing thing? Just like a healthy lifestyle is an ongoing thing. So maybe they need some skilled sessions with you and then they learn how to do it on their own. Or what does a typical um, course of care look like with medical hypnosis? Yeah, it varies a lot. So for some people, one session is all that they need. Um, for other problems that are more deeply ingrained and, and smoking tends to be one of these, um, probably three or four sessions tends to work better. And um, with our course, each we have these 12-week courses and each week we introduce a new topic and we have a, a guided hypnosis for each of them and just one. And, and I often will record my face-to-face hypnosis sessions so people can revisit as often as they want. Okay. And how long, so for the recorded hypnosis session, so the only experience that I have with this, and we were talking offline about the book, I am enough by Mm -hmm. Marissa peer. And I thought that was really helpful for people who are really struggling with kind of self-sabotage essentially. Mm -hmm. And, and she had a medical hypnosis download that was about thinking that you're enough, believing that you're enough. And it was about 17 minutes, 18 minutes, Um, Is there a typical length that you feel like works well, or can it just vary really widely depending on the issue and the person and their lifestyle? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it does vary. I think that the sort of the 20 minute mark seems to be a sweet spot for a short hypnosis session. Um, Spending an hour with a person one-on-one, I think is good because it takes about 45 minutes or so for like the gene expression in our brain to start to change like minute to minute. So people can often get bigger shifts with a longer hypnosis session. However, that sort of 20 to 25 minutes is usually enough to get people in a nice deep trance state to give the positive suggestions. It's usually most of my recorded hypnosis sessions will be about that long. Okay. And then Marissa said she really recommends if you're really serious about doing it, like doing it every day for a certain mm-hmm. number of days and repetition is key. Do you have a similar mindset or do you give, what are kind of the parameters around doing this medical hypnosis? Like how frequently do you recommend people do it if they're going to do yeah. it on their own? Yeah, definitely. I recommend doing it daily. That's ideal. If you can, um, you can do it before bed. So that can be, it's, it, possibly not quite as effective but but you know almost as effective and I will give people a recorded session without a wake-up sequence so they fall asleep oh. to the hypnosis so that's handy go. yeah, that's good yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that it's important to recognize too that this evolves and I like the question that you brought up earlier where you're asking what did you say you want to ask your subconscious brain what do you want to do? So you said you spend the first 20 minutes just identifying their goals and Ooh. what they want to train their brain to do. Yep. And I think that's a really important step, that problem identification step that so many people want to pass over. But I think I'd really encourage people listening. If you really get to the root cause of your problem, then you can solve it and you don't have to spend so much time and energy solving symptoms of the problem. Yes. Get to the cause of the cause. 
Yeah, good. I like that. That's a good place to end on. Um, did you want to share anything else with us today? And if not, just tell us where people can learn more about you. Yeah, wonderful. So um, you can learn more about me and real life medicine on our website, which is www.rlmedicine.com. And check out our podcast at it's called Real Health and Weight Loss by Real Life Medicine. Thank you. And I'll be sure to link up to the website and to your podcast and social media channels um, down below. Dr. Mary, thank you so much for this conversation. I thought it was so fun to just speak with someone who's very much aligned and I, I can tell so many different ways all the way across. I think it's so cool that, you know, it's four o'clock here it's seven o'clock, um, in Australia. And I'm mm. so thankful for the technology that we have to connect us. It's, it's amazing. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I've had a great time. Thank you right. for having me. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. All right, friends. First of all, didn't you just love her Australian accent? I'm a small town Nebraska girl, so we have the bland of the bland when it comes to accents. And I could listen to her voice all day long. Let's take a moment and really reflect on today's episode. My members know I'm a huge advocate for reflection, reflecting for, during, and on action. We have to think about what we're thinking about. So what did you think about this episode? If you're watching on YouTube, let me know in the comments. What was one of your favorite thoughts or suggestions from Dr. Mary? What's one thing you're gonna do in the next 48 hours? I know for me, the biggest takeaway was the three-step self-hypnosis system. So first, spending some time identifying the thought you wanna change. Then ask yourself, what do I want my subconscious to do? Or how do I want my subconscious to respond in this situation? Then spend some time relaxing and visualizing yourself doing that. Athletes use visualization all the time. It's very powerful and effective, but it will take practice and repetition. Think about how deep those negative ruts are in your brain. It's gonna take some time to create new pathways, but I promise it's worth it and you can do this. Don't give up if you don't see instant results. No one is perfect. And remember, progress over perfection. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd love to hear your big takeaway. Take a screenshot of it, post it to your story on Instagram and tag me at Dr. Morgan Nolte. Remember that registration for my free weight loss challenge and training opens up soon. So keep your eye on social media and my weekly emails. And if you haven't yet, go take my free weight loss plateau quiz at weightlossforhealth.com forward slash quiz. That's weightlossforhealth.com forward slash quiz to find out which type of plateau you have. That's gonna help you know which free training to sign up for in a couple of weeks. I will talk with you at the same time, same place next week with more tips to overcome your weight loss plateaus. Bye for now.